Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke 18, where you remember we've been studying such a wonderful study of the Lord on his way to Jerusalem, and we find ourselves once again in the narrative on really probably the same day, if not near what we were looking at in the last section when he gave that parable about the outcast and the Pharisee. In the early years of raising my children, I remember my kids were really tiny, just a couple of them on board at that point, and I read a book by uh, Charles Swindoll, many of you know that name from years ago, was pastor in Fullerton for many, many years and then was in Dallas. He wrote a book called You and Your Child, and when I read it, there was a section in there, I don't remember much about the book, but there was a section in there on urging dads to, and moms, but particularly fathers, to learn about their children, to learn their particular uniquenesses, the, the strengths and limitations of your kids, the particular bents, if you will, and then to shepherd your kids according to those traits, you know, keeping those qualities and traits in mind. And so I set out to do that as a young dad. And as I spent time with each of my children, I not only began to learn about them and, and the uniqueness that each of them is, but I also began to understand how children illustrate so much truth that is taught in Scripture, just humanity at the younger years. Children are a remarkable expression of all that we are as human beings, but it happened so early on, and I began to see that. For example, just the fact that the Bible says we're made in God's image, we're created in his image. And you see that right from the start with even little ones who have no sophisticated way of manifesting any of that. God, as you know, is is a person. He has personhood, and you see it in the uniqueness of your children right from the start. They are little people. They have personalities that start to emerge and individual traits that are unique to each one. God is also a reasoning God, a thinking God. He knows that he exists and he reasons. That's the kind of being our God is, of course, in his infiniteness. And yet he made us to be the same. We we reason things out. We think. Children have a way automatically, innate within them, of reasoning things out. It's part of what it means to be human, to have self-consciousness and to think about meaning and to reason life out as to what that meaning is. And then, of course, there are the other wonderful communicable attributes of God that are communicated to human beings, like love and compassion. You see those things before a child even understands the definition of them. It's automatic. It's natural to human beings, and you see it at the earliest ages. And God is moral. God is a moral being and created us in his image as moral agents, and so you see that. No matter where a child is born in the world, they express early on a conscience and the mechanism that God has put in us, this immaterial thing that the scriptures call the conscience, that is innately grounded to a moral framework of right versus wrong. Whether they follow it or not, they, they know it. It is innate, and you don't have to teach it as a concept later in school. It is, of course, a part of humanity. But I also watched my children and became quite aware that that the fallenness of humanity is also manifested in them from the earliest ages before you teach them a single thing, as you know. Children do not have a desire to share anything, ever. 
nor do they understand that what they're willing to fight for has absolutely no significance in, in some long-term sense. Children are like that. They demand everything from anyone without thought of moral implications or relational dynamics. They demand it right now for their immediate gratification, and they, they never naturally are willing to defer in the moment for a more noble cause. That's just not going to happen. Children are that way, and you see it from early on. They don't have to learn it. And you're aware then of the fallenness of man, the fact that we're corrupted by sin, and so we are self-adoring right from the start. Children are also childish and unaware. You see that as a parent all the time. They often wander into the direct path of danger, yet they're completely oblivious to all of that. And then you see, of course, that they're utterly dependent and helpless. They have someone else they must turn to for security and longevity. And yet, despite the fact that they're utterly dependent upon someone else to take care of them, they are still completely bent toward acting as though they can do it on their own. This is, of course, a demonstration of how children illustrate from the earliest days that we are needy that we need someone, something. We are not in and of ourselves capable. I also watched what we might sometimes call innocence in children, not moral innocence. No child is morally innocent, but in the sense that children amazingly are open. They're quite open to life and relationships. And they're not typically so sophisticated and hurt and self-protective and all the things that adults get into when we've lived a while. Uh, children are far more open to those dynamics, far more quick to say, no big deal, let's move on, even if that's not how they express it, even in the tiniest years. Children are curious little explorers of the wide world around them, totally open to what's going on around them. And I might add, as every parent knows, they're easily captivated by some attractive-looking offer, even if it's from someone unfamiliar. They are, for the most part, naturally drawn to a warm smile, even of a stranger. And so there's this tender shroud of ignorance in those early years, and that makes children quite ready to learn and quite vulnerable in what they're exposed to. These are the qualities and traits that you learn as a parent as you're studying and looking at and pondering the childhood of, of those that God has given you. We love to study and ponder that. And yet, children, though they illustrate many truths revealed to, to us that God has already told us in his word, there is an ultimate truth taught in Scripture of which children are the most vivid and powerful illustration. There is an ultimate truth given to us by the revelation of God in Scripture that the children illustrate most vividly and graphically, and that is what Jesus addresses on this same occasion where he's given the parable of comparing the outcast and the Pharisee. And in Luke 18, we find it beginning in verse 15. Notice. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, 
Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. For truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. It's a short text, a brief moment in the life of our Lord at this point. And the lesson we learn from children here very simply has to do with a person's disposition toward God. They are an analogy, as Jesus draws it out here, of the disposition a person has when they come to God. Jesus uses little children and and infants by Luke's terminology here. Mark and Matthew in the parallel text use the the more general term for children which could include small toddlers, etc. But here Luke being a physician, specifically mentions that he sees parents with infants still in the parents' arms brought here to Jesus. And Jesus uses the the moment to illustrate that no one gets into the eternal kingdom of God unless they respond to God in a way that little children respond to those upon whom they're utterly dependent. If you don't come the same way a child is utterly dependent upon the one that they're looking to for survival, you will not get into the kingdom of God. That's the blunt point here that Jesus makes. In fact, Matthew 18, in the parallel text, verse 3, Jesus had said, for unless you turn and become like children. That's an interesting way for him to say it. In fact, some translations say converted. Unless you're reversed, unless you're converted, unless you turn, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means unless you Come to God the way you used to be as a child by analogy. See, now you're an adult. You're, you're, you're more sophisticated in your sin and in your struggle and in your self-protective barriers and in your hiding sin and running from accountability and blame shifting and putting up an appearance over here when really you know the heart over here is, is not that way. We get very sophisticated in those kinds of dynamics and yet he says to the crowd, unless you turn Unless you go opposite and have the disposition that a child has when they come to me, just by analogy, you're not going to enter. You don't know God. You won't know Christ. In fact, the illustration goes even further. As I said, Luke indicates that many of the children brought to Jesus are infants. So you think about an infant. An infant has absolutely no understanding of eternal verities at all. No understanding at all. They've not heard the law of God, nor would they be able to understand it if they heard it. The standard of God, the moral righteousness of God. They don't even know how to respond to the moral framework within them. And when they do start to respond as a toddler to to guilt and things, they don't even know what it is. Certainly an infant wouldn't know. An infant has no understanding about matters of the soul. They They don't know what rebellion is. In fact, an infant in a parent's arms hasn't really willfully rebelled at all. They've not believed, nor have they denied. They've not understood anything. They've not done anything that would express their heart as the manifest determined will. They're completely without cognizance of anything that really matters for eternity. And so the point that Jesus extends this to in the analogy is, look, there's utter helplessness here that speaks of humble dependence And when a person comes to God, he says, you're not going to get into the kingdom. If you don't come to God with that kind of helplessness, that kind of dependence, that kind of I must have someone outside myself deal with 
my need. You say, why does Jesus go there in this scenario? Well, in the providence of God, parents are bringing kids, but you remember what he had said when he gave the parable of the outcast and the Pharisee. How did the Pharisee come? In the house of prayer, which Jesus mentions, where there's supposed to be the, pre- the worship going on, there's this pretense of worship. And what is the Pharisee doing? Well, he's condescending toward fellow sinners. You know, he's not imagining that he's the same as the outcast who's standing way over there, away from the center of where you stand and pray. That guy's over there, and he's condescending toward him. Like, I'm above you, and in the presence of God, God knows it. You should know it. The world should know it. And God knows it. I'm above you. I mean, in a, in a very real sense, just to sort of drive a little moment here. Man, if you say to your children as a parent, if you imply that you're not a peer in your sin, you're going to have a difficult time later on in life because they're going to get exasperated. Here you put the standard of God's word on them and you don't admit that you are a peer in sin. You have the same need they have for Christ. You have the same need for his forgiveness, the same need to come under God's word and the same failures. If you don't do that, you are in serious trouble in your parenting by the time young people start to grow up in your home. This Pharisee confesses no sin. We remember that from the study. There's no need for forgiveness. He's already absolved himself. Look, I, I, I am, I'm doing all these obedient things. I, I'm working my way. God accepts me. But how did the, how did the outcast come? You remember, he's ashamed. I can't stand up in the center. I'm over here. There's no inherent goodness that would attract you to me, God. So he beats his chest and holds his head down. He won't even look to heaven in any kind of gesture that says, I need you. He's just throwing himself on the mercy of God and saying, deal with my unworthiness. I'm in desperate need of mercy. Deal with my unworthiness. And so what what did Jesus say was the main point? Verse 14, everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled. If you think you can climb your way there, you think you can work your way there, you're going to be crushed in your pride. And if you never get over yourself in that sense, you're you're not going to enter the kingdom. That's not going to happen. If you come to God and you offer like this Pharisee who you think you are, you're not coming like a child. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Man, if you come like the outcast and... In this new illustration, if you come like a child by analogy, you're, you're going to be exalted. God is going to lift you up into the things that he's promised because he finally got a hold of your heart for what really needs to happen. All dependence utterly on him. So let's see how it unfolds in this text. First of all, if you're keeping an outline, just, just put the first point as burdened parents burdened parents they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them i love that this is um this is the custom at the time kind of like we do when we pray over a family now in contemporary times this was their custom carried over from israel's history through the centuries for the leaders of god's people to pray for the new little additions to the families And they would take the child to the priest and there would be this formal and sometimes informal moment of prayer from the leaders of Israel. The people of Israel knew how God felt about children. God had revealed what he believes about these little ones that need protection. 
So they knew of the heart for new life, God's heart for protecting small children, his love for them. Psalm 127 verse 3, Behold, children are an heritage from the Lord. He gives them as gifts. And the fruit of the womb is a reward to the human life. And so they always brought their little infants and small children to the priests for that time of prayer. And and what was the content of the prayer? For the favor of God on your parenting and on this child, not just physical safety, but blessing, spiritual fruit, spiritual heritage, longevity in the fear of God and the worship of God. Mark 10, 16, in the parallel text, it says he took them in his arms. He gathered the children in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. On this occasion, the verb here indicates that he's just fervently doing it. As parents were bringing their infants, he's fervently blessing the children that are brought to him. He's passionate about it. And he knows the parents are burdened and concerned. Look, he knows that since the fall, there was a curse on the bringing of life into the world. Ladies, it isn't just that Genesis in the curse says that women will have pain in childbearing. In the Hebrew context of Genesis 3, it doesn't merely mean physical pain. It means the nurturing passions of a parent, particularly a mother, are going to be pained and strained greatly to not just bring the child into the world, but bring the child to safety and security as adults. I will multiply your pain in childbearing was not merely physical. It was the whole process. And every mother knows that difficulty. Christ understood the pain of raising fallen children in a fallen world. And he knew that parents would need superabundant grace. And I love the fact that God has always given his people to pray for for families and their strength in numbers as we encourage one another in difficult tasks. That is so tender on God's part to, to give us opportunities to have leaders pray for our kids. I mean, it fills a mother and father's lungs up to have some leader who, who presides over spiritual responsibility to say, come here and pray over that family. And when a senior saint walks by your child and just touches the child and offers an expression of hope for that little one's future. That's exciting for a parent. Wow, people are praying for my family and my parenting. This is the beauty of being with God's people. There's a reinforced network. This is why when we have a lot of new little ones, we invite them to the front of the church with their newest little ones. And we pray for them in the midst of the congregation. That brings accountability and it refreshes our convictions. I mean, sometimes I'm sitting there thinking, I have to be faithful because these parents are counting on us to be faithful, to pray for them and come around them and, and to walk alongside them in their difficulties. Parenting is, of course, filled with, with unspeakable joys, really, hard to fathom and certainly limitless as to trying to record them. But as you know, it's also a crucible of inexpressible agony and pain and weeping and heartache at times. But that's what Jesus finds, burdened parents coming to him that he might bless them. Notice, and when the disciples saw it, 
they started rebuking the parents. So in your outline, you might just write down snobbish disciples. <laughs> snobbish disciples. The text really doesn't tell us exactly what the issue was with the disciples, but, but knowing the lesson Jesus teaches using children, it seems perhaps that they had become snobs about who the Lord needed to minister to and who he needed to preach to in the urgent days headed to Jerusalem. It seems like they've gotten off track here and really selfish. And so I began to ponder what they might be having an issue with. And there's just a few things that start to come to mind. They probably assume that Jesus wants to engage with as many adults as possible instead of trifling with nursery care and childish antics around his feet. You know how they can, you know, human beings can get selfish about that stuff. And the disciples are no different. They're probably thinking, oh, can you just... Please, you know, we're trying to do serious ministry here. We've got adults, people that don't believe, entire cities that need Christ. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's going to be gone soon, he keeps telling us. Kind of the same thing in John 4 when, when they, they see a woman come running past them who came from the well that Jesus has been talking to them. And they, they've gone into the town to get lunch. And they come back, hey, we got, we got lunch. You need some rest and you need to eat. And he says, guys, you're missing the point. That woman that just ran back to the village has just met the Messiah. I have food you know not of. I'm, I'm feeding on gospel opportunity. Where, where's your head, guys? They probably assumed Jesus wanted to do ministry around adults, and, and they were no doubt concerned about the time it would take to offer a formal blessing. I mean, all these families. Mark's gospel indicates it might be upwards of a 1,000 people trying to follow him around, so you can imagine whether he's outside or in some home, Mark's gospel indicates it might have happened in a house He's got parents coming with their infants and word is spreading and more families are coming. They're thinking, oh, great. That family's got five kids. That's got 12. They've got two. How, I mean, how's he going to preach if he's constantly doing these blessings? But then I thought, you know, it may very well be they're screening parents out front. Well, have you been following Jesus like we have? I mean, have you been sacrificing for his ministry? Huh? You want his blessing now? You know, sometimes Christians can get really snobbish, you know? Somebody brings, some unbeliever in the community brings their child to one of our children's ministries, and we're like, oh, well, they, they never show up. They just go out to breakfast. We're kind of a babysitter. What is wrong with us? Bring them. We'll give them the gospel. And when you pick them up, we're going to say, hey, we gave them the gospel. Sit down for a minute. We love your child. We want to talk to you. I mean, it could very well be that these guys are screening parents and thinking, you know, if you haven't been faithful to Jesus at this point, you're an unbeliever, you don't believe in him, then I don't know that he's going to want to talk to your child. Give some blessing on your infant. And they began rebuking the parents. <laughs> don't you know the Lord has more crowds to preach to, filled with so many adults who don't believe? He's focused. Please take your noisy ones out. But Jesus is different. He, he saw the opportunity to do some things here. Three particular things. He saw an opportunity to do three particular things. Number one, to welcome children the way his heavenly father welcomes them. I'll talk about that in a minute. To welcome children the way his heavenly father welcomes them. Secondly, as I said, perhaps to use this priestly blessing to open the hearts of the parents who need the Savior. And maybe to bless them eternally. And then thirdly, as the 
last verse will indicate, he illustrates how a child is, the innocence and helplessness, and he used it to illustrate by analogy how a person must come to God if they're truly going to be saved. So in the narrative, you have these burdened parents, and then you have the snobbish disciples. And what do you see in verse 16? A welcoming Savior, a welcoming Savior. But Jesus called for them. He called out to the disciples and to the crowd, hey, permit the children to be brought to me. Permit these infants to be brought, these little children, these toddlers to come to me. And he doesn't just say, hey, guys, let them come. It's, it's good ministry. He doesn't say that. He actually rebukes them and gives the negative as well. Stop hindering them. Get out of the way. Think rightly. You're not thinking rightly, guys. This is an opportunity here. And notice why he says it. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Wow. I mean, how much theological ink has been spilled over that phrase? Because people are trying to get their minds around how to understand that. Well, let's think about it for a second. Let's, let's think about what he did not say. He did not say the kingdom belongs to these particular children being brought to him. He didn't say that. That these being brought to me are in the kingdom as if they had been regenerate. That's important so you don't make the mistake of thinking Jesus was redeeming those little infants upon whom he was offering a blessing. He's asking for the favor of his father upon the child and upon the family. But he actually says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's a different demonstrative pronoun there. He's using them as an analogy. He's not talking about them particularly. It's a different term in the original language. Moreover, he did not say that all little children, all little children are somehow free from a sinful nature that, that makes them worthy of judgment. He didn't say children are some moral, innocent state of existence. That was, a, that was an old heresy from the early centuries under Pelagius. Pelagius taught that children were morally blank, morally neutral at conception and at birth, and until they made their first willful decision to sin, the, the slate was blank, and it could go either way. They could either be morally good if they make a good choice that first time, or morally bad and once they've made that choice, that would be their disposition. So his doctrine of total depravity began when a child made a willful choice. It wasn't what the Bible does teach. And that is that if you are human by nature, then you are from Adam and Eve's corrupt loins. And therefore, by being a human, you inherit death. Death reigns through corruption, through disobedience, through sin. Death reigns. It doesn't matter how death comes. It doesn't matter how sin is passed. You can argue over that theologically all day long. But Romans 5 is very clear. Death came because of sin. And when you're born, you have physical and spiritual death already a part of your constitution. Because you're human. And we come from human nature. Well, Jesus didn't say that little children are somehow free from the sin that is judged eternally by God. Psalm 51 verse 5 says we're all uh, conceived in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. The very fact, we know that, the very fact that all children experience death proves the point. Proves that we're all corrupt and not sinless. 
But what Jesus implies here about children is that God has, we could say it, a protective love for them because they are helpless and without understanding of eternal matters of the soul. The first thing Jesus is doing when he's receiving them is he's teaching us a, a general principle that this infinite, this infant who's helpless is protected by God because of their helplessness and they are without understanding of anything eternal, any eternal matters. Now, we don't have time to cover all that we could say about this shroud of innocence that covers unborn, the unborn and newborns and children yet without understanding as an adult. Look, children don't have, when they're small and they're tiny and their minds are tiny or infants, they don't have an understanding of the law of God, the standard of God, the holiness of God. They even look at nature. They don't see what Romans 1 says the adult mind apprehends. A holy God who's bigger than us, more powerful than us, and to whom we will give an account. Every human being with an adult understanding sees creation. And Romans 1 says you know that. You know by what you see about yourself, about other humans, and about creation itself that there is no excuse for you if you reject the God who made it all. Infants don't understand any of that. Tiny children don't have an adult understanding of the law of God, the standard of God, or accountability to God. You give them the gospel, they don't. Sure, sure, I'll believe that, whatever. They don't know. And I will say that I believe what the most robust biblical pastors have believed throughout church history. That until a child grasps what is only for adults to grasp, or I could say until the understanding of a child goes from a state of childish spiritual ignorance to an ability to understand spiritual realities, God's standard, our utter shortfall, redemption in Christ. Until that time, they are protected by the grace and power of God. And I believe it for one simple reason revealed in Scripture, the purpose of judgment, the purpose of hell. You can study this Scripture your whole life, and the purpose of hell continues to come forth as reserved for those who willfully reject God, whom they, Romans 1 says, do not acknowledge him as God, nor give thanks. That's the heart, the human soul, for which eternal judgment is reserved. And if in God's providence an unborn child or an infant is taken early, or anyone without mental capacity to grasp basic truths because their mind doesn't work that way. Someone that is without that capacity. If they are taken before they're able to grasp any of those eternal realities, I believe what the church has stated all the life of the church. As John Calvin wrote, those little children have not yet any understanding to desire his blessing, but when they're presented to him, he gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by a solemn act of blessing. To exclude from the grace of redemption those who are of that age would be too cruel. It is presumption and sacrilege to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom he cherishes in his bosom and to shut the door and exclude as strangers those whom he does not wish to be forbidden to come to him. End quote, in a spiritual sense. Theologian R.A. Webb said it this way, if a dead infant were, to, were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there'd be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment because sin is a reality, but the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. 
Under such circumstances, the child would know suffering, but it would have no understanding as to the reason for it. It could not tell itself why it was so awfully smitten, and consequently the whole meaning and significance of its sufferings being to it a conscious enigma, the very essence of the penalty would be absent, and justice would be disappointed, and therefore cheated of its validation, end quote. That's right. The purpose of hell tells us that God has reserved those that have no capacity and that he's ordained to take early in his providence. He must guard them and protect them because they are helpless. I love B.B. Warfield, the 19th century Princeton theologian. This was quoted in one of the commentaries. He said their destiny is determined irrespective of their choice by an unconditional decree of God suspended for its execution on no act of their own and their salvation is wrought by an unconditional application of the grace of Christ to their souls. It is through the immediate and irresistible operation of the Holy Spirit prior to and apart from any action of their proper wills. And if death in infancy does depend on God's providence, it is assuredly God in his providence who selects this vast multitude to be made participants of his unconditional salvation. I believe that, absolutely. So Jesus then welcomes the children, not because these children he's welcoming are redeemed. They're, they're not gone yet, they're there. He's pronouncing a priestly blessing on them. And not because he's saying all children are saved. What he's saying is there's a welcoming of them because God protects them in their shrouded time of ignorance, or we might even say innocence, quote unquote. That's why, beloved, our culture is in serious, serious trouble. Make no mistake, God's chastening, severe chastening, is already mightily upon this nation. Because we as a nation give hearty approval of a systematic wholesale infant murder in industry. It's tragic. It's grievous. It's horrific. But lest you become overwhelmed by excessive sorrow over our nation's wickedness, know that God overrides all such wickedness and has, by his sovereign will, even taken that industry and populated heaven with it. And if you're sitting here and you, as someone who's redeemed by Christ and utterly forgiven, if you have scars from your pagan past that go to the core of your being, then you should know the comfort of a merciful God who has welcomed that little life into glory. And one day you're going to enjoy the wonder and grace of reuniting with those that you care so much about now. A sweet protected soul by God. That's one of the reasons Jesus welcomed them. But notice the ultimate reason. It's a gospel illustration. You have some burdened parents, some snobbish disciples. You have this welcoming Savior. Why? Because he wants a gospel opportunity with the parents. He wants to bless these children. He knows the heart of his father for little, innocent, helpless children. Even though they're depraved, he knows these infants are utterly dependent. But he wants to use them as an illustration 
of the gospel. This is the gospel according to children. Verse 17, I say to you, truly, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Man, by that time, not just the parents, but the crowd must have been spellbound by the reality. Oh my goodness. What you're saying is that just like the the outcast in the parable who came and said, I don't, I don't bring anything. I'm not worthy of anything. You'd, you'd need to judge me. That's, that would be right and good, and yet I throw myself on your mercy, and I need your forgiveness. In that same way, you must come with the helplessness and dependence of, of what you see in a child that has no ability at all to care for its own security or meet its need. And he's expressing here two things that must happen if you actually know Christ. It had to happen in your conversion, two very basic important truths. One clearly is humility. Look, if the child is that dependent, then the child has nothing to brag about. It's not accomplished anything. It's never done anything. There's no way for it to say anything about itself. It's an infant. It's as though you're to come to Christ and say, everything that's happened in my life up to this point is worthless. It's as if it never happened. I'm like a spiritual infant in your presence, God, because everything I've achieved and I used to bank on is nothing. I need only you. You're my security. You're my dependence. You're everything. And then, illustrated in the the way a child responds to those upon whom it's dependent, it's this picture of faith. It's this picture of believing, trusting. A child is open and trusting. That's his point. Unless you come trusting, you say, oh, I believe. But listen, he's not talking about the fact that, that you get to decide what you're believing in or whom you're believing in. Look, your faith is nothing. It's just an instrument. Your faith is not the power. Your faith is not what your salvation's grounded in. Praying a prayer doesn't ground your, faith, your salvation. Your, faith can't be, your, your salvation isn't based upon your notion of faith, your idea of spirituality. The ground of your conversion is Christ. Him alone, he paid the price, he's now resurrected, he gives life, he forgives sin based upon his work. There's the ground of your salvation. But how do you get it? You get it by the the same way a child looks to the security of the one upon whom it's dependent. You embrace everything that that caretaker offers openly, willingly, and only that. Look, an infant reaches up and takes the care its mother gives. An infant reaches up because it has nowhere else to reach. An infant reaches up and embraces everything, grasps the finger, grasps the hand, come here, walks over. Apart from its growing desire to be autonomous, an infant is the perfect picture of what it means to come to God. I've got no accomplishments behind me, just like an infant hasn't lived any life, and I've got nothing to commend me for my own security. I have no ability, no understanding, no nothing. I'm coming to you without human understanding, without human ability, without human achievement, without human security. 
and I open myself up to it and embrace it. Not based on my thoughts about it, based on what you said about it. You have promised. And I completely ground my faith on that promise in the work of Christ. And that's how you come. If you don't come like that, you're not in Christ. I'm not saying that's how you thought about it exactly. I'm not saying that's how you would articulate it when you, whenever you tell of your salvation. But in reality, that is the only way to come. If you came and thought, man, I, I got to bring a little bit of me. I'm not bad. I haven't committed the big sins. I haven't violated the big laws. In fact, I've gone to church all my life. Christian parents and grandparents hang out with Christian friends. I've got a Bible and it doesn't even have dust on it. I actually use it. I actually have read it. Go to a Christian university. I hang out with some people who are pretty neat people, moral people, conservative people. We don't go do the things that the world does. Listen, if you want to come to Christ, all that is nothing. If you've never come to Christ on the basis of his works, his perfection, his righteousness, and you want to offer your good choices, you don't know Christ. Because Jesus says very clearly, if you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child receives the promise of its parent, you will not enter it at all. Humility and faith. And then faith does one other thing. When, you, when, when a child embraces the one upon whom it's dependent, it, it says, take me wherever you want to take me. Where do we need to go next? What do we eat next? How do we get cared for next? What's our next hour of the day supposed to be doing? What are we doing? You tell the child what to do. You tell the child what to wear. You take the child where you want to go. You feed it when you... It's, it's your care of the child that develops the child, and the child's just taking it and saying, you're my parent. You're my master. It's instinctive. It's innate. The only thing that corrupts it is rebelliousness in the heart. But even after the child rebels, have you ever noticed how quickly they just want to come back and just say, oh, where do we go, mom, dad? I mean, even little toddlers. I mean, I mean adults just hold grudges for years. You can sin against your toddler in your speech and in your tone and your attitude ten times a day. They're just like, that's okay, mommy. <laughs> like, you're wonderful. I wish your dad were like you. <laughs> I wish your mom were like you. I mean, children are just like, take me wherever you want me to go. And Jesus is saying that. Faith not only welcomes the promise of Christ and banks on it alone, but it also says, you're Lord, you're master. I'll just go. Just go wherever you want me to go. You know what? Jesus implies, and we're going to talk about this practically speaking next week, the, the pride that enters into our hearts after we come to Christ and we do not act like dependent children looking to our master for direction. We act like sophisticated Christians who've kind of got this down. And after all, Lord, I've been saved 10 years and I've noticed you missed a few things. We get very argumentative with the Lord, not soft defensive and hidden and so the child becomes an illustration of how we're to come back to the Lord every day and say Lord I I'm so sorry when we pray 
in the church service, sort of that prayer of asking the Lord to cleanse our hearts. That's what we're doing. Lord, renew us. Take us back to infant, spiritual infancy, not in our spiritual maturity, but in our state of disposition, our faith and our humility. Take us back to that kind of dependence. Take us back to that kind of faith where when you tell me something in your word, I don't argue with it. I might have a tough time submitting to the Spirit to bring my flesh underneath it because of bad habits, but I want to get there. You'll empower me to get there, but don't let me argue with it. Don't let me do that. Don't let me be stubborn. Let me be like a child, dependent, humble, believing, trusting. No, we'll get practical next time. Let's bow. Lord, such a moment in the Lord's, in your life for these disciples to see. Such a precious moment where you taught so many things from the life of a child. Infants. Their helplessness, their willingness to believe and trust. As an analogy for our spiritual disposition, thank you for that. Thank you that you've given us the power to do this as your people. We have your spirit to help us. May we not be snobs thinking that somehow the people who are needy don't need our sacrifice. Help us not to be snobs that think about these things in narrow, singular ways rather than in the wonderful opportunities you open up gospel opportunities, illustrations that help us understand our walk with you. Help us not to get in the way of ministry. But more importantly, may we receive your word as we received the, the knowledge of the kingdom, the gospel, and having been now recipients of the truth and saved and redeemed, and citizens of the kingdom, may we continue to be humble, dependent, always believing, never arguing, and yet always confessing our need and our sin so that we might never have anything, any barrier between us in our walk. Lord, be merciful to those today who, like some parents in that crowd on that day, they might not know you. They're still dragging around a bag of works just need to cut it, cut ties with it, never trust in it again, but trust in your perfect life and your sacrificial death, offering yourself to your heavenly Father, our judge, as the payment for sin, and your righteousness as our covering and forgiveness. Be merciful today as you were then, and plead with you for it in Jesus' name, our Redeemer. Amen.